Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's always a trip trying to, as I'm sure you know more than most, trying to, in your head, juggle West Coast, East Coast, UK, Mountain Time. There's so many time zones. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I had it correct, and I put it at my reminder in the phone, and then she messed me up by saying, hey, you got that meeting, that you got that podcast today at 2, and I'm all, okay, 2, great. So then that was it. I, I got time. Well, we're here. Cheers, dude. Really nice to to meet you over Zoom and make your acquaintance. Um, and it's it's interesting for me because there's not many people, I don't think, from your era uh, that are still not only in the industry but giving back um, and not just thriving yourself, but continuing to help the the scene, the genre, the community progress. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, that there's was very for, few. Yeah. That, I, I mean, that was the reason that we started BYO and, you know, and uh, we carry that through to everything we do. Well, now it's just me, but yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we'll get there. Maybe we won't. But there's a lot to discuss, my friend. Um, sure. Where did, did you grow up in Hollywood? Uh, no, I grew up. I'm from Canada, from Toronto, Canada, originally. Right. Um, I moved out to L.A. when I was 10. Um, my father was a doctor um when i was younger and he got bored with that um and decided that he wanted to he really liked to write so he started writing for 
TV up in Canada. Strangely enough, I don't know why, but he was on a he, he was writing for a, a weekly um, musical variety show called Music. I always thought it was called Music Cop, and I always thought that was weird. And I, and I think he corrected me recently and said, "No, not cop, like police, music pop, or I don't remember what it was, but." This is where Gordy Lightfoot, one of the early shows that he was on in the 60s and really helped propel him to fame in Canada. And he passed away yesterday. I don't of know. course, rest in peace. Yeah. yeah. That, so, that's pretty interesting, Sean, that, you know, a doctor is obviously a very steady, stable, respectable profession. Um, and, and what age was he when he decided, you know what? I've done that. I'm done with that. I'm going to go and, and follow the Hollywood dream. Rare and and yeah. quite quite inspiring perhaps to grow probably, up around that yeah he was probably in his early 30s um you know yeah i mean the story that he always would tell me is that he went to his uncle and said you know they were talking about what he was going to do before he entered university and he said ah oh, you know i want to learn about life and he said well you want to learn, learn about life his uncle said you you should become a doctor because he was a doctor of course <laughs> And uh, I guess he, he he did it. I mean, you think about it. You go all the way through medical school and internship and everything. They had a practice. And, eh, this, I'm bored. I'm going to write. I mean, that's pretty crazy. So it's kind of an inspiration of, you know, that sort of, ah, I don't need to do what other people tell me to do. I, I can do what I want to do. Um, so he started I think the working. most inspiring thing as well is that he did the training, as you say. You know, he didn't just quit med school halfway through and go, do you know what? I'm going to pursue this lofty dream of being a film you know director writer instead it's like no he did the whole you know seven years is it seven years in canada i think it's seven over here it's a long time uh, yeah it's not i think it's four years plus three years with the in, and then the internship so yeah it's a fair amount yeah definitely a, a lot of dedication but um and so it, you and land worked. in hollywood when you're 10 yeah yeah he he started getting jobs out here and so he was spending you know five, six, seven months at a time living out here working. And then he finally said, okay, this is where it's at. We need to move the whole family out. So 1970, we moved out here, um, drove across the country in a station wagon, me and my mom and dad and two of my brothers. My youngest brother was barely, not even two. So he flew out with an aunt later. Uh, we lived in the Valley for the first three years. Then we lived in Beverly Hills for the next three years um next five years and then when i graduated i moved when i graduated from high school moved to hollywood got my first apartment me and my brother mark uh around the corner from the chinese theater right in the heart of it right in the heart of it and uh in the middle of the punk early punk scene in 1978 um and then a couple of years later we got this house called skinhead manor it was right across from hollywood high um crazy old looked like some sort of haunted house but i don't know i think there was 10 different bedrooms and four or five bathrooms it was crazy big huge two-story thing that we would have parties and we we built a, a little we, we we turned the garage into a rehearsal studio you know putting the egg cartons on the wall and hanging the used carpet deaden the, the sound in there we rehearsed there circle jerks rehearsed there uh, no crisis rehearsed there. A few other bands probably never went anywhere. Um, yeah, so I I lived in Hollywood for about nine years and about 
four or five different places and then finally moved to Venice in uh, around 87, I think it was. Um, and I've been in Venice ever since. I was there not too long ago. Um, Kevin Kerslake used to have a place down there. I'm not sure he still lives there anymore, but he's still got the house. And um, yeah, we went by there. And uh, Venice for me, even though I think I gather the pandemic changed things a bit down there, you're plugged into this really electric energy down there that, I mean, I don't know where and when that began, whether it was the 60s or even before then, but when, whenever I'm in that part of Los Angeles, everything, even just the air feels alive. It's an, it's an amazing, magical place. Yeah, it is, definitely. I, from what I understand, it was always pretty crazy here, but it was very much a sort of vacation amusement space back when it was built in the 20s 30s 40s i think it kind of started to fall apart a little bit in the 50s and then definitely in the 60s and 70s and from what i understand beat the beat poets were coming down here doing stuff it's always been very funky and artist uh um centered and then you know the doors jim morrison lived down here and it was definitely um in the 60s a lot of hippies were living down here it was pretty cheap it was it was probably one of the most mixed neighborhoods as far as uh economic racial religious it's just super mixed and one of and by far the the least expensive beach community in the entire state probably on the entire coast of west coast um especially considering it's in this huge city of la not anymore unfortunately um it's 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 been gentrified like everywhere else and uh you're not going to buy a house here for less than a million, a million and a half dollars. I watched for the first time in a few years, another state of mind earlier and Keith Morris pops up. I forgot he was in it. Now at the start of the film, you're kind of laying down your vision and hope for, you know, the band and the label and everything. And it's right there. And I want to talk to you about your rooting in perhaps hippie to begin with maybe, and then the transition to punk, but very quickly, Keith, was he just always switched on like a live wire? Because there's, there's a brightness around him that, you know, I'm obviously aware of now having interviewed him and spent time with him. But you see him even as a kid and he's just like in it. Yep. No, no, he's always been like that. That's who he is. Always. Uh, I, you know, people, I'm not a big Black Flag fan. I always tell people, you know, for me, Keith is Black Flag. Once he left, I didn't really care. I'm not a Henry Rollins fan. I, I. I I appreciate Mr. Rollins' knowledge of music, um, but he doesn't seem to be the most socially. Uh, hmm, how shall I say this? He's not. He's not a social being. Put it that no. way. He My even experience. says that in his show. I went to see him recently, and he's like, "I just pretty much keep myself to myself." He's not very enamored with the human race. It seems yeah. like. <laughs> yeah, he he showed up at our festival when Iggy played because I guess he's friends with Iggy. Um, he was in the backstage and he just sort of sat himself down in the backstage area by himself. And people were trying to just go up and say hi. And he just wasn't having it. He wasn't, wasn't talking to people, just pissed off guy. I don't know. How do you yeah. go through life like that? It's funny, though, if you listen to his radio show, he's a much happier person when he's taught when he's playing music. And he is very knowledgeable about music, very passionate about music. I totally appreciate his knowledge and his passion when I listen to his show. He also talks way too much 
He knows he talks way too much. He says, I'm talking too much. I need to go to another song. And then he continues to talk for another five minutes. <laughs> and he talks song. too fast as yes. well. You're like trying to keep up. Yeah, I think he loves music, hates people in a nutshell. That's Henry it, Rollins. Yeah, but the, there would be no music if it wasn't any people. So how do you square that? There you go. But yeah, Keith was just always that dude, was he? Just like switched on, tuned in, and, uh, and very articulate, even from a young yeah. age. Yeah. Um, so are you, though, dude. And the film starts off with you, as I said, in your vision and, and kind of what you hope to achieve in this quest of going out on the road with, obviously, at that time, Youth Brigade and Social Distortion. So for you as a young kid, you, you kind of see what you're your dad does with his career transition, you know that it's not just the path laid in front of you that is the only option. What kind of music, first of all, hits you in a way beyond just like you're tapping your feet and you're enjoying the sound of it, but, you know, perhaps the words or the, you know, the message begins to speak to you on like a, a visceral or personal level. What are the first bands, performers, artists that begin to affect you? Is it punk or is there a few, you know, oh, no, no, bits and wait. pieces before? Well, well before punk. Because my father also played guitar and wrote songs and performed in uh, when he was going to university, he would play in like cafes and stuff. And my grandfather played piano, self-taught. And it was my grandfather who who basically said to us in the summer of probably 75, he was out visiting from Canada and we were bored. And he's like, he said, why don't you start playing some instruments? And we'd already we. We'd taken piano lessons when we were in Canada, Mark and I. Um, Mark actually would ditch them and keep the money, and he got caught because he was doing stuff like that all the time. <laughs> but we did that in Canada. When we moved to L.A., I picked up a saxophone in the middle school uh, band. My brother played, Mark played violin because he liked a girl who was in the orchestra who happened to be the the daughter of David Gates, the singer of that band Bread. I don't know if you've ever heard of Bread, but yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Guitar Man, right? Was that was that a big hit? I, yeah. I, that might be. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, yeah, really crappy soft rock early '70s stuff. But but I mean, AOR my... as it's now called, right? Album orientated rock, like what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But my but so early on, I was listening to you know Motown because it was on the radio, AM radio. Um, and I loved all that stuff, Jackson Five, especially um, Supremes, all, all you know, Smokey Robinson, all, all that stuff is what I would listen to on the radio. But my my dad was listening to when we moved to California. I remember listening him listening to, and of course, so we were listening to because we were ten, eleven, twelve years old. Um, Crosby, Stills, Nash, uh, Bill Withers, um, Jim Croce. Um, James Taylor, Joan Baez, Carol King, all that sort of st stuff, you know, kind of folky stuff, because that's what he was into. And from that, you know, when I started smoking weed, which is about the age of 13, um, then I started getting into Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. Jimmy, for me, Jimi Hendrix is the, the, the ultimate inspiration. Like I tell people I wouldn't play guitar, or play music, and not that I am in any way saying that I'm anywhere close to what Jimi Hendrix could do, but he's an inspiration, not just his guitar playing, but his songwriting and his singing and at the whole package, you know, for me, he was one of the most amazing um, musicians, songwriters and performers, you know. Um, very, I find very it super interesting because a lot of people who follow punk, and for me, there are two types of people who love punk. 
There's those that follow the music and don't contribute anything. And then there's the people who create the scene, whether that's those in bands or people who organize like you as well, labels and festivals or both. Um, and they're the people who love all music and grew up yeah. appreciating all. And then there's the other contingency or like, there's no bands before the clash. And you're like, what like, did with the people who were around then as you were, you know, as punk was, I guess, first emerging, did those people who claimed to feel that way, do you think they genuinely believed it? Yeah, I, I think that early scene, from my perspective, of course, was very, very influenced by all kinds of different music because punk really comes out a lot from the glam scene, right? And Roddy Bingenheimer was doing his thing. I wasn't aware. I was too young. But but as I got into punk in 70, in the summer of 78, it's really when it really exploded for me. Um, you know, Rodney had Rodney on a show on K-Rock sunday nights and that was where you would hear new music you know he, he would he would find it he would play it so you know he come he's coming from his english disco that he was doing three four five years later where it was david bowie and the stooges and you know um sweet and all those sort of glam bands that uh t-rex and so on and so forth um so to me it's 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 always going to be a mix. I mean, I grew up with that, that hippie thing, right? I, I First with those sort of folky bands, folky rock bands. And then, you know, when I started getting into the more rock and roll stuff in the mid 70s, you know, from about 73, 74, up through about 77, 78, when I started getting into punk. Um, so there was the hippie stuff. Of course, there's the classic stuff, you know, the doors, like I said, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. I I, I love Sly and the Family Stone. is huge for me too. Um, well, they were the know. first interracial mixed gender like mainstream band, weren't they? Which yeah. at that point in time was like super progressive and amazing. Yeah, but I I never thought about these things like oh wow. I I just thought these guys are fantastic. They're making great music. I love this music. Um, I got you know I I'm. I'm going to emulate it in some way or another, you know, because when when I started playing guitar, which was in 75 or 76, my brother Mark decided he was going to play drums and we had a high school band and we were doing covers. You know, we were playing Hendrix, we were playing Led Zeppelin, we were playing Aerosmith, The Doors, stuff like that. That's what we were doing. Um, so when I heard punk rock for the first time, basically in the summer of 77, I read Robert Hilburn's article about the Sex Pistols. I heard Elvis Costello's My Name is True played in its entirety on the local rock radio KMET. And I said, this is the shit. This is what I want to do. This, you know, because for me, the hippies were, I was just a little too young to be a participant, right? I heard about it. I read about it. It inspired me. They wanted to change the world. I thought it was great. But by the time I was old enough to participate, it was arena rock. It was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which I have nothing against sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But the message, you know, the anti once once the war was over, the anti-war stuff, it, it was pretty much it. So they were just the, the music was make money, party, um, and that wasn't cutting it for me. So for me, as soon as I heard punk rock, I said, "This is the stuff that I want to do." This this says something to me, you know. Those guys were older; they're not that much older than me, but at the time you know, when I'm 15, 16, 17 years old, they're in their mid, early mid twenties or even thirties. And they weren't talking to me and the punk rock scene was, and that's why I got into it. And that, 
that's when I, you know, and was all, it was English punk that I heard first, you know, and then New York stuff too. And then I started going to the LA scene and seeing the bags and the screamers and the germs and the weirdos and, um, and F word and all, all these bands. And I thought, yeah, uh, this is the first, the first punk band I saw live was the Dickies at the whiskey in the spring of 1978. And I was blown away. And I said, yep, we're not playing covers anymore. I'm writing my own stuff. It's, this is it. Yeah, I love that band. Still going strong as well. They're coming to Bristol soon, actually. I'm going to go see them in a couple of months. I've still actually never seen them live, despite no. loving them for, for many years. They kind of have the whole... There's that kind of neat little pocket of American punk for me that's so comedic and so razor sharp with the imagery and, and the sound, and it's like a package. You know, like it seems like every little element of it is so well thought out and executed there's no fat whatsoever yep yeah i i'm the only thing i'm sad is that they they got in a whole big hassle and they stopped doing the stewart puppet and i was talking to stan about it he's like yeah man we got too much shit for that i'm all it's a joke it's funny i mean when you're drunk and you saw that puppet you all sometimes thought he was really singing those <laughs> have you ever seen the, the puppets? I, I'm, I'm aware of of the puppet i spoke to to jesse mallon about that whole thing right after it happened i'm actually talking to kevin lyman tomorrow and i very yeah. much look forward to talking to him about you know that whole scene and and how i felt they were really mis mistreated yeah. um by their own scene um in that instance i felt like everybody jumped on them and it was this kind of you know misguided attack on a band that helped sow the seeds and, and and really create the scene um and actually people who i'm led to believe i've never met so i don't know but i'm told by everybody that knows leonard um that they're all a uh, stan and all that crew they're just like absolute gentlemen and they respect yeah. women and, and all of that stuff absolutely and, it's a joke i mean yeah it, it, it you know unfortunately this cancel culture that we live in and i hate to use that word because the right has you know dominated with that it's it's but it's just silly i mean and and people on the left just eat each other it's like it's crazy to me you know that they they don't seem to understand that you're on the same side and this this extremism um this zealotry on the on both sides of the left and the right you know i i'm a i'm a lefty but i have to say that some of the people especially in progressive politics these days they just, I just don't understand what their end game is because they're fighting the people that are their most, I mean, really they're, 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 they're allies. They're fighting with their allies instead of who the real problem is, is the extreme people on the right, the fascists. And this is the kind of, this, this is the kind of stupid narrow-mindedness um, that allows fascism to take root and start taking hold. You're turning off people that, that believe and agree with almost everything that you agree with by being so extreme it's 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 crazy to me i couldn't agree more with that exact sentiment um it's something i felt myself for a long time as well and for me the big thing is the total lack of joy a lot of these people are just so joyless and it's like you know i, I got into punk and, and i guess all art really for me has to have a sense of if not joy because sometimes i like really bleak stuff that just sucks the soul out of you but affects you in a you know a real way but all art should stir up emotion and if they are doing that then it's having its desired effect and you can't try and strike that out of art because then it's like then you will be left with aor classic rock <laughs> until the end of time 
because you just if you just want beige vanilla rock and roll then say goodbye to all the exciting fun entertaining acts oh absolutely i mean isn't that what you know this is what i always talk about um with spotify who I, i i i believe is you know it's not just them but they are the leaders of this i heard a guy from spotify maybe seven eight nine years ago talking doing an interview talking um about what their plans were for the future and i and i always say this when i'm talking about spotify and doing interviews is they refer to the music and the artists and the musicians who create the music as content creators there's a reason for doing that right i hate that word so much content yeah i mean we're 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 gonna have a writer's strike here for the same the same reason is that the people in power the people controlling distribution of our art our our our, you know artistic ideas whether it's uh you know music or film or television or books or painted art or whatever the people in control of the commerce of the distribution of our work are trying to belittle us and and reduce us into this by calling us content creators um so that because what they want to do is they want to create the content themselves and cut us out so that they don't have to pay money or royalties or any of that um because what they're looking to do is use ai to do it that's just the reality that's what's going to happen is that people are not going to be making this anymore they're going to they're going to take the work that was done before they're going to throw it into a computer they're going to let the computer generate something very similar and voila you don't have to you don't need new musicians anymore you don't need writers you don't at some point you probably won't need actors either everything will be done by computers um, well you see it happening already don't you they did uh, an oasis thing recently they did a nirvana thing recently like they're doing it and and it's you know <laughs> scarily convincing and similar to the source you're like uh oh do you think then just to jump forward real quick and then i want to go back but do you think as somebody who's firmly rooted in live music and events do you think that is the last space to be co-opted by you know this exact movement that you're talking about the yeah. um, the commercialization and, and the capitalization of, of art because it feels like live events is the only thing that you can't now as you say plug into an ai system and, and just replicate from from scratch from nothing yeah i mean well they did the whole the hologram so that they, they may be angling towards that but yeah i mean you know the the music business has has completely devolved in the last what 10 years very quickly from you know delivering your music recorded music via something physical which is fine i I was fine with itunes model of downloading the songs that's great we were getting 70 percent. the artists the labels were getting 70 percent of that income i thought that was a genius thing cut out you know making vinyl and cds that are just you know a vehicle to deliver the music and you can use the computer great wonderful this this idea with streaming sucks because we get 0.0001 i think one one hundredth of a penny is the average of what we get per stream i mean it's ridiculous and it's who sanity yeah yeah who, who decided that spotify why do they get to decide how much i get paid for my music I, I took my shit off Spotify some years ago because I said, screw these people. 
and now we sold the catalog to we we did a um a deal with another company and they put it back up they said look you know you're just losing money by not having it up there it sucks i'd prefer not to have it up there but it's true i think neil young's the only dude who doesn't i think he and that's why one of the many reasons i'll forever love that dude um everybody bows eventually for one reason or another and you got to do what you got to do and obviously he is in a position to not but i just love the way he's like fuck these clowns yeah no i agree i i I mean i wish i i I could do that too um i did for a while but the, the bands on the label were just you know complaining hey you know okay i get it the the sad thing is i don't know how it is in 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 the uk or europe it's it's a little bit more organized but here musicians don't realize the power they have to control this business if they would form a union you know there's a union here for musicians it's basically for classical jazz and um studio musicians yeah pop pop musicians rock and roll hip-hop whatever they don't join the union because it's no benefit to them right but if there was a union here the artists don't understand they really have the control because if they said fuck you no more you know uh we're gonna we're we're not gonna work with any of these companies anymore i feel like you could apply that principle to people and the governments as well in theory it's like if we could all just get together on the same page we'd be able to fight this bullshit but unfortunately the problem is with with the left as well is we can't get on the same page so it's like True. We'd rather just and, argue with each other whilst the house burns. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that the right is very good at building a coalition of people that are don't really give a shit about the other's cause. I mean, this is what you have on both sides, right? People, when, when I've been involved in politics, there are, there are people that are zealots who it's like, all I care about is this cause. That's all I want to talk about, you know, whether it's abortion, uh, religion, guns. Um, the environment whatever it is that's all they care about so when you go to build a coalition the right has been very good at saying to each of these different you know one one party groups work with us vote with us we'll get you your thing and they've done it i mean look they've they've overturned dobbs they've 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 taken over the supreme court they've done it in this country very well the left they don't do it very well they're they're constantly arguing amongst themselves which i understand because you don't get to do a lot of these things on you know you you need to do all of those things together right it's not like one thing will get you the others and to do what the right has done you have to sort of look with blinders well i disagree with these people but i know that what what it is that i want is going to happen if i just vote with them if i hold my nose and vote with them i mean just you know donald trump there you go perfect example masterful marketing at the end of the day isn't it and distraction tactic and just like hey look at this thing over here now i've got your attention let's focus in on this let's go let's go let's go and then before you know it it's like huh what just happened (laughs) well he he's the greatest grifter since pt barnum probably in this country i mean that's that's what he is he's a grifter he's there to, to scam people you know and he's done a masterful job um and he's found the right party i mean the guy was a democrat most of his life um he was uh uh against you know he he was against most of the things that he says that he's for now but he doesn't really believe in 99 percent of the shit that comes out of his mouth other than to get money from you mm-hmm. that's what he does the the everything he does is based on how much money he can get from you how much he can squeeze out of you 
doesn't matter if it's $5 or $5 million. He's there to grift you. That's what his job is. When you are starting out as a young kid, because all the early punk bands for me, as amazing as they were, and they are, they continue to be, they, they were really still working off that old model of signing to the major, getting tour funding, go, and kind of doing it the traditional route, albeit with this fresh, exciting new music. Who was it? What was it that inspired you to look at the whole lay of the land back in, like, what would it have been, 79, 80, 81, in that time frame, and go, rather than chasing a record deal, and, and getting somebody else to fund this, let's do this ourselves, which for me is the absolute crystallization of what, you know, the, the movement did culturally and, and for humanity. I think even now you can feel the positive effect of that um, DIY light bulb moment. But what for the early people like yourselves, you hadn't seen bands successfully do it before. Um, what was the inspiration for you to go? Now we don't need to sign with anybody else. We're going to do this ourselves. Um, because we, we were in an environment where it was necessity. I mean, there was no major labels here signing bands other than the Dickies, you know, the Dickies signed A&M and it didn't seem to do a lot for them. But for us, it was never a question of, is a major label going to be interested in us? There were a lot of, in that early scene in LA, they were trying to emulate what was going on in London, what was going on in New York. Right. And those bands were definitely trying to sign to major labels, even the ones that would start off on a smaller label, you know, in those early days, Rough Trade was a smaller label, you know, and there were some smaller labels. And here there was Slash. Um, and before that, there was Danger House. Um, there was a few that we saw um, that were doing stuff, mostly seven inches and Slash. Slash started Compilations, doing, right? Compilations, comp yeah. records, um, stuff like that. Um, so, but we were sort of this in between, uh, you know, we were, we have one foot in that early 78 mask, LA mask, punk scene, Canterbury mask, all that stuff um, in those early bands. But we were some of the youngest, me and my brother, there was a handful of other people that were teenagers. Most everybody else was in their twenties and even up into their forties in that early LA scene. That, that gen, I always say that generation X song, 100 punks. It came out in the summer of 78, that record, that was pretty much L.A. I mean, it was a little more than 100, but there was 100 punks, more or less, living in Hollywood at the Canterbury at other apartments, um, going to the mask to see shows and then the new mask in that 78, 79. Um, and we kept saying, shit, when because we were surfers and we I kept saying, man, when all the surfers and in the beaches get into punk, which I knew they would. Because it's just the surf lifestyle. It's just perfect for punk rock. You know, it's it's a match made in heaven. And they did. The the first show that I really, really saw was when when Public Image came and they played at the Olympic Auditorium. And there was about, you know, I think it was about three, 3,500, 4,000 people there. And that was, at that time, one of the big shows. I mean, The Clash had been here and that was big too. Um, but... Public image was a lot of surfers. Um, and that that to me was like, wow, this is changing. And then from there it just sort of exploded. And when so we did started... you did you know you had a community there, you know, people that were gonna buy the albums and support the music? There was you knew the infrastructure was there just locally. I mean, I, I knew that I knew that it was there when when I was going to the mask because Brandon 
Mullen was running the mask and I saw firsthand how, you know, how he was running shows. And that was a punk rocker, you know, as a, as a guy from, from the UK, I think, was he? I think he's Welsh. Yeah. You know, he was doing shows at the, at the mask and then we were rehearsing there. Then he moved into another space because that one got shut down. That was in the basement of a porn theater, um, a half a block from this hotel, uh, hotel, old, I think it was a hotel at one point. But this apartment building called the Canterbury, where, you know, people, a bunch of people lived and there were people rehearsing. The Darby Crash lived there and Lorna Doon lived there and, you know, Pat Bag and um, some of the, you know, Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's. Eventually the Go-Go's, they weren't even a band yet. So that was the punk place where everybody, a lot of the punks lived. And then they would walk down the street to the mass to see shows. Um, and then so so that was the community. And it was very cohesive close-knit community but it was very arty and skewed a little bit older um when i went to that public image show that's when i saw wow this is this is going to get big because we were getting harassed walking down the street people were throwing shit at you calling you fag and all that sort of stuff um getting into fights um and then when the scene exploded people didn't mess with us anymore and and it the way we did things was because we had to, you know, the, there were shows at the whiskey and the Roxy and then they stopped booking punk bands because there were too many problems. According to them, um, cops would show up, they'd harass people. There were shows at the Starwood for a while on Tuesday nights. Um, but eventually it got to the point where we just started having to find places to do shows, you know, find a bar that we could do it, rent a hall. So, like I said, it was out of necessity. And the same thing when, when it came time to let's make a record, it wasn't, hey, we, we cut our teeth because when I had this band before Youth Brigade called um, The Extremes, this kid approached us who was, this, what was his name? Chris, crap, I can't remember his name, but he started this label called Test Tube Records, but he'd never put a record out in his life. So I just started making calls. I found the pressing plant up in Hollywood. I talked to this guy, this German guy, Max, who ran the label shop next door. He showed me, you know, this is what you got to do. You got to, we get labels. You call these guys lead processing. They make your stampers. They do the processing and make the stampers. And then you go into Macola. What I think it was called Alco at the time. Eventually Epitaph bought that building later in the nineties and opened up their first Hollywood office. Um, that was the pressing plan. And so um, I learned just by asking questions, you know, and this is how you do it. So when we went to make a record for BYO, I already knew how to do it because I figured it out for this kid, Chris Trent, who started Test Tube Records and put out the Extreme 7-inch, right? He didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. But, you know, I used to use the library a lot, too. So there was no Internet. You just yeah. figured it out, right? Well, uh, that's it for me. That's the exact, you know, modus operandi of, of something like punk is just don't wait for it to be handed to you get out there and and do it yourself and i guess is the kind of timeline of events that you put on the big youth movement show use money from that to get the school bus and then that was your transportation for the another state of mind tour yeah before but before that in 81 so youth movement 82 was in president's day weekend which i believe was either january or february of 82 Right before that, we ran this club out in the valley called Godzilla's for about three, three months, maybe. Um, and we made money from that, which we then used to fund the show. 
And from the proceeds from both of those is where we bought that used school bus um, and then booked the tour. What a magical time yeah. to be to be young, to be out there. Did it feel like, you know, potential was limitless or was it really just living for the day back then? Like, yeah, was, that, was there ever an end game or a long-term sort of goal? No, it's just day-to-day. I mean, the ideals that I had when I started this idea for BYO was it, it really came about in, I think it was 79, there was a, a show at this hall downtown called the Elks Lodge. Um, and that uh, I didn't go to that show. I don't remember why, but I didn't. I think at school, it was a school night maybe, because um, I was going to university at the time um some bands played i think the go-go's might have played the skulls maybe i'm not sure if x maybe the plugs but it's a nice hall probably holds about 1500 people they probably had about three four hundred um but also in that building were banquet rooms and there was a wedding going on a latino mexican wedding and i think some of the mexican kids at the wedding got into it with some of the punks calling them weirdos and freaks and so it was before people were really fighting, but something happened and the cops get called and the cops came and just started beating up on the punks. So uh, the next day there was a press conference and, you know, most of the questions as normal when they were reporting on punk rock centered around that, you know, you, you guys are weirdos. You look like you're crazy. No wonder you're getting, you know, they, they just always focus on the negative of what you look like and not really about the music and the positives. Um, and that's sort of the inspiration for me at the time of we need to concentrate on getting the word out of all the positive things that punk rock, you know, the punk rock scene is about and how the music has a message there to try and inspire people to create change, sort of the same as what the hippies did, you know, and that was where I was coming from, you know, being a bit of a socialist, being a bit of a utopist, an idealist. Um, and when we we started the house skinhead manor not long after that um that was kind of the idea idealistically my thing was hey we want to promote bands and promote ideas to make change there's a lot of problems in the world um and that was the idea of course then you get the reality of a bunch of dumb kids who don't really know how to organize and uh and just want to party right yeah that's get, that was get free of, ride <laughs> yeah it's always right let's just party people were you know shooting speed and doing all kinds of stupid shit i i remember some of my friends from huntington beach coming up and partying and i get up at you know 6 30 in the morning to go to school and i look at one of the bedrooms downstairs the doors open and these guys are on the floor crawling around and i'm all what are you doing i think it was my friend kevin he's like oh hey what's going on uh you know and he's basically grabbing hairs of the carpet thinking that it's the cotton balls so that he can try and shoot up again because he's so out of his mind and you know that 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 to me was the end of that the skinhead manner and of all the ideals that i had and i realized then that the communal idea is not going to happen if i want to do it i got to do it with me and maybe a few friends that knew what they were doing and and had the sort of same work ethic that i had because unfortunately most people like you said they just want to party Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Who were the best bands back then? Like, because again, watching Another State of Mind earlier, Mike Ness isn't Mike Ness yet. And, and you can you can see he's on the verge. He's teetering with the you know the old song and whatever on the steps, but he's not the Mike Ness that the world now knows. And there wasn't particularly, I don't think, anything just from watching that documentary that makes you think like, wow, that band, you know, they were onto something special. But who was the first one for you that was evidently just you know special and talented? And then later on, who emerged perhaps that surprised you? Like, oh wow, I didn't see those guys getting good. And then there they go. I mean, you know, like. The first punk band I saw was the Dickies, and they were amazing, right? Yeah. And they're still amazing, you know. Um, the, those early punk bands in in LA were there were really some pretty talented bands, some pretty good musicians. I mean, uh, the Screamers were amazing live. They record they barely did any recordings, and they never released anything. Um, but live, they were you know wow. Seeing Klaus Nomi and you know. <laughs> it was very much performance art you yeah. know yeah yeah um, um but i mean the germs you know if you were drunk enough and darby was drunk enough it was amazing most of the time they weren't very good um the the deadbeats with geza that was a really amazing band the weirdos were always really really good um those early bands there, there was such a variety of the sounds and the ideas that were going on it, it was really a fun time to be around and then the punk bands that that later scene that younger scene that you know if you talk to those bands from 77 through 79 80 they basically said yeah the punk scene died when all the kids got into it and i'm all no that's when it exploded you guys missed the boat and it's funny because a lot of those bands are coming around now reforming and some of them never broke up like the dickies or x but you know, they're playing to those kids, those kids who are now, you know, in their 40s, 50s and even 60s. Um, X are so good, man. I saw them on the flogging Molly Cruise last year. I DJ on there and do Q&As and stuff on there every year and watching them on a boat um, with, you know, a generation of people that had grown up on 90s punk bands and in many cases weren't familiar with them. 
was just such an amazing experience and that's kind of what i love about you know events like you know punk rock bowling and i think you guys probably do it better than any other in the u.s is that straddling of all the different generations and times you know and you'll have on like the specials for instance and then you'll also have on like bad religion and then you know newer bands and it all seems to work really well i think there's a festival in the uk called rebellion which does it to a similar extent as what you guys are doing over there but it's pretty easy i think to to kind of bring all the different age groups together um because ironically as it started as this very violent and, and dangerous thing i think now punk has become this embraced almost as like a family friendly event for all ages isn't it yeah I which think is so awesome too. uh maybe the kids aren't maybe the angry kids aren't coming to the punk scene anymore i don't know but they're i i am inspired by how many because of covid you know a lot of people kept saying wow you know trump is so much worse than reagan you'd think there would be an explosion in, in new young punk bands and i didn't really see it but with covid it started to happen. I know that in Vegas, we were always trying to find local Vegas bands to book. There's just not a lot. The punk scene there, Vegas is a very weird and unique city. It's uh, is that where it. you live? Do you live in Vegas now? No, I live in, I live in Venice in, in LA. Right. You're still Venice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, I spend a fair amount of time in, in Vegas. Fab Mike just moved to Vegas as uh -huh. a matter of fact. It's just such a, it's 24 seven, you know, there is no, there's no like nine to five shift there. You know, it's open 24 hours a day. 365 days a year um and it's just it's just very weird it's you know it's it's a tourist town more than really than any other um but during the pandemic a lot of families moved there um because they couldn't afford to live say in la or wherever it was and uh a lot of kids started bands and uh, backyard parties and we've got about i don't know at least a dozen bands from Vegas playing either on the festival or on club shows this year, which is more than we've ever had. And most of them uh, have at least a member or two that are under the age of 30. Um, you know, I, there's there's a few bands that are under the age of 20. So that that's inspiring for me to see that. Um, because, like I said, all those problems that existed in the 60s and 70s and 80s, they still are here today and they're actually worse in some ways, some of them, because especially when it comes to the environment, you know, not very little has been done to, to fix things. It's only gotten worse. You know? Yeah, I think it has only gotten worse. Um, it's interesting uh, that there is, I think, a distinct I think that the the angry and aggressive art is still out there. I think what happens nowadays is perhaps is it's just not. You, you don't get to be mainstream and be outspoken anymore. I think yeah. there was a time when you could be artistically challenging, commercially successful and politically outspoken and do all of those things, you know, without risking losing everything overnight. Whereas I do feel like now the pressure on artists that are in any kind of mainstream lane is to, you know, bite their tongue, button their lips and don't speak out about stuff and just get on with what you're here to do, which is sell records. <laughs> yeah even though they don't make records really anymore <laughs> yeah 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 to get spotify streams <laughs> yeah. hey i want to thank you personally for um the byob series um the split series those records for me were such a game-changing series of albums as a kid you know they hit me at exactly the right time when i was getting into punk and that no effect rancid one in particular what an album um 
And those two bands at that time were just on fire. And I think aside from perhaps the one rancid song that Matt Freeman sings on, no disrespect to him, all the covers are so great. Um, how, how much were you guys involved in, in all of those you know, records from the songwriting, song choice selection and any of that, and even putting the bands together? Like, Did you orchestrate and instigate, or did you more just release into the wild? Um, we always try to orchestrate it, you know, as much as we can. And when it comes to the split series, you know, uh, it was Mark's idea. Um, ba- basically it came about because I was talking to Frankie from Leatherface saying, Hey, I'd love to do your next record. And he was sort of the, the band's not really together. Um, and I was talking to him by fax at the time, because it was in the nineties. Um, and then I got a message from Hot Water Music saying, hey, um, we want to do a tour with Leatherface. And they told us to contact you because you're their label. And I'm all, oh, that's news to me, but great. And so then the idea was, hey, if you guys are going to come here to do a tour, we need to put a record out. And Frankie said, well, I have enough for an EP. And I said, it costs the same amount of money to make a 12-inch with five songs as it does to make a 12 inch with, you know, 12 songs. So, and he's like, well, I only have this many. And so we said, well, you're going to tour with hot water. Let's do something together. And boom, that was how the split series came apart to, to be. And and Mark came up with the idea of, with the look, because there was a, a jazz label blue note that had done something. And he, he liked that because, you know, he'd been doing Royal crown review a few years earlier. So that was a big thing. So that was his um, genius idea. I, I, I loved it. I loved the artwork. Um, and then we, you know, we did the Swing and Utters one that we did. It was because we loved Swing and Utters. Yeah. Um, and then the Bouncing Souls Anti-Flag, we'd worked with, you know, Bouncing Souls and we tried to sign Anti-Flag and they went to Go-Kart. That was a big mistake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where's Go-Kart now? Right. Uh, uh, and uh but you know we love we love both bands and the, and the guys in the bands so definitely all that we had a hand in alkaline trio one man army we were working with one man army we tried to do something with alkaline trio and so yeah i mean we we don't decide on the song but we definitely put the bands together and say would you like to do this and usually it's a yes we actually had something with dropkick murphy's to do one i can't remember who it was going to be with uh i I think we said, oh, we should get the Pogues, but um, that's never going to happen. But it, it was funny. Um, the Rancid No Effects one, I talked to Mike and he said, yeah, sure. And I talked to Tim and he said, yeah, sure. And then it went on for about a year. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. And finally, you know, basically I wanted to obviously get original songs. Um, and then Tim suggested they cover each other's. And I said, Whatever you guys want to do, I'm fine with. Um, and that one deviates from the artwork too. That was Tim's idea. And I said, again, whatever you guys want to do, I'm fine with. Um, did, that that, one, did that one sell a shit ton? Did it do well? Biggest, biggest record we've ever had by nice. far. Yeah. I, I, I know that I went, I flew, Mark and I flew up to San Francisco to meet with Mike and Aaron to discuss what we should be sh- expecting to ship. And all the numbers they gave us for each of the distributors was completely right on. I mean, they knew their shit. Um, the funny thing to me was 
when the distributors who I'd worked with many of them for years and some with for decades um, were asking me for discounts. And I'm all, you're fucking kidding me. It's the biggest record that we've ever had. You're going to sell a shit ton and you want me to give you a deal. Why would I do that? They're fucking unbelievable. No punk rock mates rates. That's the thing, isn't it? With punk, it's like everybody's rooting for you to succeed until you do. And they're like, come on, man, give me, give me a discount on the action here. It's like, we need to all thrive for this to continue. Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and did you start the festival around that time? Is it around the same sort of time? Uh, a little, a little bit after, but yeah, I think I, I, I can't remember. No, no, we started the festival before because the No Effects split was two thousand two or two thousand four, early two thousands. The the festival started in ninety seven, no ninety eight. Yeah, January ninety eight, I believe it was. Um, always in Vegas. Yeah, always in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, 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 Fat Records has done a bowling league up in San Francisco. And Andre, who was working at BYO at the time, said, Oh, we should do a, a league here in LA. He didn't tell us that he's a really good bowler, but we, we put one together with us and Epitaph and some other labels and fanzines and some bands here in Santa Monica. And we had a really good time. Um, and Mark and I, after that was over, we said, We should do a party in Vegas with bowling. And that's pretty much how it started. So it's really Andre who, it was his idea to start the bowling league. And that led to the bowling tournament in Vegas, which, you know, the first 10 years, it was just a party. Yeah, you know, yeah, we'd, yeah. Have, we'd have a band play the first night. We'd have a show the first night to kick it off. We'd bowl all day Saturday and party. People would do their own shows at some of the smaller venues around Vegas. And then we would have a final awards party sunday after the bowling on sunday this me first would play the, the house band play. right i'm chatting to spike tomorrow yeah <laughs> they they yeah they they played the first one manic hispanic sort of became the the de facto party band at the awards parties almost played most of them um they were just a lot of fun everybody loved them and then you know one year in 2010 this guy came from one of these casinos and he says i've got this state-of-the-art bowling at alley that i just opened up and i said yeah i don't really care and he's all what i also have this amphitheater i said that i care about let me see he's like you can have the amphitheater for free it holds 3500 people and i said now we can do a festival three days and we did it there it was great sold out and we moved it to downtown the next year because that casino decided they wanted to charge us a whole bunch of money and i said well i'm not going back to you then and we moved downtown and we've been there ever since and then obviously, because you've been in the industry for so long, is it fairly easy, you know, within reason for somebody like yourself to get the bands that you want on the bill? Or do you still have to go through a lot of the same politics with booking agents and managers and things like this that, you know, the more corporate festivals have to do? Like, do you get any kind of a, you know, a head start being from the scene? Uh, I think, you know, my brother is the one who booked the, the, the bands all this time. And now he's he's left the business uh, last year so. This year was my, I was always involved. Like we would discuss all the bands and the money and stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, there's certain advantage we have that if we need to, we can talk to band members because we've been friends with most of these bands for many, many years. Um, but you know, we still go through the agents. We, you know, the, that's, that's what agents are for and lawyers and managers and all so on and so forth. But when there is a problem, 
sometimes you have to reach out to your friends, you know, and, oh, and, cool. I, and I will, I, I won't, unless it's a, a problem. You know, I, I don't want to, I, I never want to undermine an agent. Um, but there are bands who reach out to me directly. And for all the little bands, we don't, they don't have agents and, you know, but we, I, we pride ourselves in, in treating everybody reasonably and fairly and paying them a reasonable amount based on the size of our festival. You know, it's crazy when you get some of these bands that have blown up and playing these bigger festivals um, and the agents asking for crazy money. And I'm saying you get that money from that big festival that has 50 or 100,000 people. We have 9,000 and I'm giving you an offer that's well beyond, you know, the 10 percent. Uh, capacity that we have compared to that big festival that paid you that money we, we don't have that money so be reasonable some are most are not all <laughs> out of all the the bands you've booked over the years who have been and obviously you're saying you know your brother mark was in charge a bit more of the booking up till recently but as a, a lover of this music as you know somebody who's been in it their whole life what have been some of the the proud moments for you that have really just made you, if you could look back to that kid starting out like fuck as if we got so-and-so to play our event or so-and-so. Well, I mean, I'm happy that we got all the bands that we've been able to get because otherwise we wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't be where we are. We wouldn't have survived all this time. But I mean, Devo for me was pretty amazing. I saw them at the Starwood in, in, in 2000. Um, no, no. I saw them at Starwood in 1978 um the starwood it's have you ever been to the whiskey i've been to the whiskey yeah 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 similar to that not not quite the same layout but the small club that holds probably four or five hundred people so that was an amazing show at the starwood and having them play and they played also last festival too so having them play it's amazing they, they, i i just i remember when we announced it i think it was 2014 or 15 um people some people are like that's not a punk band and i said you guys are you don't have any idea yeah yeah sure they got top 40 songs and they they became you know a popular band later on in their career but they're a punk band from way back when you know and i love um, Devo so much they're one of my yeah. favorites yeah and and you and i said you you'll see because we'd seen them play a few months before at, at the at the racetrack down here in inglewood and they were awesome um and we we told everybody you're gonna you're gonna love it and everyone in the crowd is gonna be singing along with every song and they were yeah. and they loved it and it was awesome um you know getting charles bradley when we did the new jersey thing you know people that's the thing is that one of the things i because as we were talking earlier i have a lot of different influences in in, in music in my musical taste because for me it's music as a musician i appreciate all kinds of music I'm not a huge heavy metal fan, but I appreciate it. I'm not a country music fan, but I can appreciate it. You know, I like the old bluegrass stuff. I like the folk stuff. I like Johnny Cash and stuff like that. The new stuff, not a fan. Hip hop, I'm not a fan of the new stuff, but I love Run DMC. I love um, Sugar Hill Gang and and um, um, De La Soul and, you know, uh, all that sort of stuff, Boogie Down production and, and Slick Rick and all that stuff. I love it. I, you know, I grew up listening to that stuff when punk was coming up. That, that to me is what, you know, rap music, hip hop, I don't know, rap music. That's the rap music that I grew up with that I love. I love lots of different music. And so, you know, there would be no punk rock if there wasn't rock and roll. There'd be no rock and roll if there wasn't 
you know, blues and bluegrass and folk music and all those things that were the were the basis for all the music that I listen to now. So I appreciate all of those different styles of music. And for me, getting Charles Bradley to play in New Jersey was an, an amazing thing to do. I loved his music. He was an amazing performer, super sweet guy. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've been the one that's pushed for diversifying the festival a bit more. I, you know, I pushed my brother, I like, we got to book the hives. He's like, I don't know. I'm like, they're an insane live band and they're great, great musicians. And, you know, they, and they were, they played this. We, we love the two-tone ska stuff, you know, specials was a big deal for us. We're, we're hopefully we've been trying to get madness. Hopefully that's going to happen. You know, those are big bands for us um it's the stuff that you know we listened to back then that I, if if those bands are still playing i want to see them you know i'd love to i'd love to get new model army i'd love to get um manu chow i'd love to get lots of you know i could i have a whole list of stuff mm, people will say that's ah, not punk rock but people always ask me what's punk rock and i'm like i can't tell you what punk rock is i maybe could tell you what it isn't I can't tell you what it is other than it's a it's a it's an idea it's a state of mind it's a it's a certain you know there are plenty of people probably playing country music or hip-hop music that are punk rock you know I don't know if you know Genesis Owusu is out of New Zealand Mm -hmm. that guy's punk rock for me I mean he's amazing shit you know there's there's lots of bands like that um it's not just you know the certain four chord sound of the 77 punk rock or crusty punk rock or whatever it is this genre or hardcore or whatever punk rock it's rock and roll at the end of the day you know this is protest music that's what it is so you don't have to be playing loud guitars to play punk rock as far as i'm concerned and that's what i that's for me what this festival has got to be about right yeah all those bands that you mentioned as well bring it live and when you go see a band like that live at a festival you know, they might be considered the wild card. For me, they're just, they belong there as much as Rancid or any of the others. But when you go see a Devo or a New Model Army um, or a Hives at a festival live, they're going to be the talking point of the weekend for you. Because you're going to go, wow, I wasn't expecting that to be as incredible as it was. I'm like, well, I kind of was. (laughs) And it was. Um, And then you'll moan again next year about the the surprise card in the deck then. And then you'll see it and you go, oh, I should never have complained. That was awesome. Everybody, I think, should be more open-minded with um. Yeah, with live events in particular, if if they can bring it live, then they deserve a place on the bill. I've got to get out there one year. I've never been. I'd love to come out. Ah, yeah, you need to come out. And um, yeah. So what happened? Are you and your your brother still friends? Are you still on good terms? Or is it just the end of the working relationship? Well, definitely the end of the working relationship. He he had a baby <laughs> um, during COVID near the end of COVID. So you know, I think that that had something to do with it. And I guess it was just time after working together for 40, over 40 years, he decided it's time for him to go and do his thing. But punk rock bowling will still very much continue under your capable guidance. Yeah. Uh, That's the plan. (laughs) You never (laughs) know. Well, no, you do never know. You never know about anything in this life. Um, And would the, would the split series records ever come back? Would you ever think that there'd be a place for them in, you know, as limited runs in today's kind of vinyl resurgence world? Because um, that nostalgic appeal still looms large. And I think nostalgia is big business nowadays yeah. for better and sometimes worse. But, you know, a lot of, of tours now are focused around anniversaries and 
you do see nostalgia as this big commodity in today's live and record related business um is it something you would ever consider or, or even be interested in considering i mean we we sold the controlling interest for the catalog to trust records um the ones who put out circle jerks and they just re repackaged uh, the crew and aggression and then we've got youth brigade 40-year anniversary um coming out this year of 40-year anniversary of sound and fury the the second version the one that everybody knows so uh, it's up to those guys you know i said look i don't have time to deal with this anymore i don't really i'm not signing bands i tell bands all the time you, you don't need a record label anymore you can put your music out there which is one of the beauties of the digital revolution there are a lot of great things about di digital revolutions there's a lot of horrible things about digital revolution um including social media and uh spotify as we discussed earlier um so i told them you know if you guys want to do stuff i'm happy to talk we're we're talking about lots of different things i got a lot of um a lot of i have a lot of ideas um but i'm a, one person so that's why for me to let them take over was fine you know and we'll see what they want to do um I, I i'd be happy to collaborate on some ideas like that sure i just don't want to be the one that has to go and you know press the record and distribute it and deal with spot i don't i'm done with that the festival is more than enough work i mean that 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 the festival's been pretty much our business um our main business for a little over a decade now you know the record well business. it's an annual thing now isn't it with events of that scale it's all year round you know it's like the second that the one year is done you're straight well even before the one year is done you're probably already looking at the following year and then as soon as that year is done it's like right let's have two days off if we're lucky and then get straight <laughs> well, into I'm, next year <laughs> i'm i'm going i'm going to italy for three weeks after the festival this year nice to early july because my girlfriend's from there and um we like to go travel there and we haven't been since since 2019 um and a friend of ours is getting married, but that's just an excuse. We don't really, we would go anyways. Um, but yeah, we are, I mean, we've already got bands. Um, and we're in discussions with bands for next year already. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll really start getting down to work in July and August. And uh, we, we got to get the lineup announced by, you know, fall. So, yeah. Well, this year's lineup is insane. I mean, it is every year, but you just you've nailed it this year. Um, unfortunately, I work for a UK festival called Slam Dunk, which this year is on the uh, same the same weekend, so I'm unable to make it out. But I am hoping it falls on a different weekend in future years. We'll have to see. But yeah, you guys, you guys, it's on the Queen's Jubilee. Is that what your dates based around? Uh, it's the bank holiday weekend in May. So it's, it's always the final weekend of May, which is when your festival falls this year. Our our festival is usually on... September, aren't you? No, no, we're no. always in. May. It is always yeah. May, is it? Always May. We just had that one September because of COVID, right? You know? Um, but we're always Memorial Day weekend, which is the last Monday of May. Whenever yeah. the last Monday of May that weekend, it's going to be that weekend. Well, I might be forever cursed. <laughs> I yeah. might, I might just have to go slam dunk. I'm having a, I'm having a year sabbatical. I've got to get out to Vegas, man. Um, what, do you, what do you do for a slam dunk? You so I host it? one of their stages. I host yeah. and compare and, and kind of, you know, do do some DJing in between bands during changeovers and stuff. So it's always the the punk stage. So this year it's like Offspring, Goggle Badello, Flogging Molly, 
etc etc but yeah it's um for me it's the only uk festival that i think kind of nails the the newer end of popular rock and then that more kind of heritage nostalgic classier end as well uh, classier kind of um classic but it doesn't go as far back as as say you know specials or well they did do one year where they had some older bands before the main festival um mm. but it certainly doesn't go you know beyond like 90s bands it doesn't go any any further back than that but like rebellion yeah, Re- yeah rebellion's yeah. lineup this year i i find interesting because it's very it's a big change for them you know they've been squeezing they've been sort of putting in more and more american bands the last 10 years and now well, it's because they know a lot of the British ones are sadly either dying or retiring, right? <laughs> They're like, we're going to have no headliners left. We better get the American boys over. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, but yeah, and sadly, yeah, sadly for us, I mean, shit. We lost Mency. That was a big blow. That was a big boner. Angelic Upstarts are a big uh, inspiration for us. We, we, we promoted the show when they first came to the States and played with them. I really love that band. Well, as a Birmingham boy, one of the things that I love the most is how big GBH are in the States because they're not really massive over here. They're, you know, respected. They do okay. But seeing how, you know, revered they are over in America is a heartwarming thing to see. Yeah. They're they're on the bill this year, are they, for you guys? Did I see them on this year? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Them and the Damned are probably some of the bigger ones. And Crazy Coxpar is the, you know, here than they've ever been. And it's really LA because you know sixty percent of our crowd in Vegas is coming in from Southern California. Yeah. Do you think Mike will be welcomed into Vegas now? He's a local businessman and resident. Do you think all will be forgiven? I personally, I think most people don't care. Um, but they were booked on the twenty twenty one show and, and bailed out like a month out. And and Mark had said, "Look, if you guys want to play, you can play." And he said, yeah, yeah, we, we'll do it. And then he said he was getting death threats. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> yeah, just didn't fancy it. It's a weird one, that. That was another one of those situations like the Dickies thing where you're like, this is getting way blown out of proportion. And again, it's social media kind of, I think, taking a quote. And if you're just saying it to your fan base in the time, in the moment, most of the fan base are going to recognize that's part of your known shtick that you've been doing for decades. Yeah, And just it is. that's what they do. Yeah, it was it was definitely in bad taste. I I'll, I will say this. I was there. I don't remember. I mean, I was drunk, so I don't remember. But everybody that I talked to, most 90% of the people said, I don't even remember hearing it. Some guy taped it, sent it to a TV station. That was the end of that. Yeah. And if they had, if you know, I told Mike said, I remember when I talked to him, he's like, we don't apologize. I'm like, that's you do what you need to do. I got to get out in front of this. I can't condone it. It was not a nice thing to say after people died like that. It was not, not, not funny. Not, you know, you gotta, there, there's a little bit of a line there, you know, that was, I mean, what, what's the point? It's not, mm-hmm. I don't know, but yeah, I think, I, I think that they should play in Vegas, but we'll see. I don't know. That's up to them. It's their final tour. Yeah. Right. That's where the tour should end. <laughs> then they don't need to worry about death threats. It's the last show. <laughs> That's a good stick. I, I, I'm going to pitch that to him. <laughs> <laughs> it all ends here. 40 years, the road stops. Um, 
I've really enjoyed talking to you today, Sean. Thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry if we run a little bit over, but yeah, there was there was so much I wanted to try and get through and could talk to you for hours, but that seems like a, a good place to wrap up and appreciate your time. Appreciate all your work and contributions to the world of punk rock as well, man. And uh, congratulations on, you know, on everything, on a very fruitful life and career and long may Thank it continue. You. Thank you, man. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. It was a, it was a lot of fun. I'm going to go make some bread now. Love it. <laughs> Got to be done. Nice one, mate. Have a good day. Enjoy the rest of it. And uh, you too. I'll, Thanks. I'll see Take you care. in Vegas. One of these days. Yeah. Cheers, All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. Long time. Many people have suffered. Never fell in love. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.